You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, August 11th, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. This day in history. Better be better than last week's. (laughs) (laughs) August 14, 2003. The Northeast Blackout of 2003. Oh, wow. The worst blackout. Now, you might be asking yourself, where was I during this blackout? You may not be, but I'm asking it on your behalf. I was uh, on uh, 1st Avenue and 32nd Street as the lights Mm -hmm. lights went out. I was stuck in New York. It took me seven hours to get off the island of Manhattan. I saw a movie like that once. Were there any undead or vampires involved? Oh, goodness, yes. There were undead all over. Evan, but quickly, you have to fix your major gaffe from last week. Oh, you know what I learned last week? You can't trust certain science websites. (laughs) You just can't Uh trust them. Uh, haven't I taught you that? You have. Before? You have. You said, yes, double, double check your sources. Dom Perignon is not the inventor of champagne. Right. And uh, I, uh, you know, I, I only went to one website last week, unfortunately, to find that. And uh, I was Jay, wrong. get the paddle. Most people that you think invented stuff didn't invent what you think they invented. Well, we have a couple interviews coming up this week, uh, one with Aubrey de Grey and another special interview You'll later in the news section. So let's get on to our news items. Uh, Bob, you're going to tell us about computers evolving simulated intelligence. Yeah, this, these were a couple of recent bits of science news that caught my eye. There's two titles I came across that were fairly pro- provocative. One was Artificial Life Forms Evolve Basic Intelligence. And the second was uh, computer-simulated life forms evolve intelligence. So this latter article, of course, had the requisite image of what? What, what was at the top of the article? What an image of something that you've all seen a million times? The Terminator. Times. Right, of course. An evil robot from the Terminator movies. That's so hackneyed. Yeah, come on. They should definitely have used a Cylon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, all right, I, so, Steve, that's what I was thinking. On to the news item. Scientists at Michigan State University have created an evil skeleton-like robot that will take over the... <laughs> wait. No, no. Maybe that picture was accurate. <laughs> no, actually, the fact is that Dr. Uh, Charles Offria and his fellow scientists at Michigan State University have created a computer world of sorts called Avida, populated by their digital creations called Avidians. That's, at least that's how I'm pronouncing it. Um, I like to play on words here. Vida in Spanish means life, so... Avida would then be a life, right? Which is the the popular shorthand for artificial life. Um, I thought that so was so. What does nice. Avida Zane mean? <laughs> <laughs> so each each Avidian is essentially a little program that can breed with other similar programs, and each time that they breed, they make these little tiny copy errors, like random mutations um, in a genome. These little genetic changes. Generally, I would think that they're, they would hurt. They wouldn't be helpful. But sometimes they help uh, the Avidians deal with the simulated environment that they're in. So, for example, imagine you've got a grid of cells um, in, you know, it's the simulated environment. And the cells have this digital kind of digital food around them, um, which becomes increasingly plentiful, you know, the more you go into one part of the grid. So this food is really just the processing time uh, that the program needs to keep reproducing. 
Um, I, I prefer to think of it as digital Reese's peanut butter cups. But after a hundred generations of breeding on these, these simulated cells, these, uh, these code mutations actually created a gene, if you will, that allowed an avidian whose ancestors lived and died on one cell to move from, for the first time to another cell. And, uh, if, if there were more food on that cell, then it could reproduce more frequently and create more offspring. Um, than the stationary avidians were, were capable of. So that's kind of like the bare beginnings uh, when they were starting this research. After thousands of generations, more interesting things started to happen. If you imagine that there's this food gradient on the, in the cells such that it, if you move in one specific direction, you're going to get consistently more and more am- amounts of this processing time or this food you know, until you actually hit the source of it. So these, these avidians, after dealing with this for many generations... They learned to actually compare the new cell that they were that they're on to the previous cell that they were on. So you know you could imagine them kind of randomly zigzagging left, right, forward, back. And but they would what they were doing was they were comparing the amount of food on one cell compared to the one that they that they were on. So they evolved this kind of rudimentary memory or even an intelligence. Some would say including uh, Robert Pennock, he was the lead scientist. He said, for example, doing this requires some rudimentary intelligence. You have to be able to assess your situation, realize you're not going in the right direction, reorient and then reassess. And they even have other, other more examples of more, even more complex memories being demonstrated by these uh, little avidians. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the bottom rung of the ladder leading up to you know, some kind of information processing, right? Oh, absolutely. And the idea, though, is that, and one of the tricky parts of this, I think, is that you've got to set up the selective pressure in the environment so that the, the organisms are forced to adapt. But this type of digital evolution, I've been reading about this for years, and it, it really is interesting, if you're not familiar with it, that some of the advantages are, are, are pretty cool. The, the generation, the time it takes between generations, you know, these generations just fly by. You're not waiting three years for a mouse to die or, or to reproduce. You get up, get a cup of coffee, come back, and you're, and you're looking at the, you know, the great-great-grandkids of the avidians that you saw minutes ago. So you can go through scores and hundreds and thousands of generations in very brief periods of time. Yeah, but you know, you've got to deal with all those computer rights activists. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the other advantage is that you can actually you can re- you could stop evolution in these digital creations. You could um, rewind evolution. You could make changes. You can see what happens. You could minutely examine the precise changes to the to the offspring, etc. So what good is all of this really? Besides potentially developing a path to some sort of uh, artificial intelligence, we could also learn things about evolution um, that we uh, would otherwise be much more difficult and take much more time. Uh, Dr. Laura Grabowski, um, another researcher, said said that we're showing how complex traits like memory can be built from the bottom up, from things that are really very simple. Um, and, and what they did was they actually could take this code, they could take snippets of this evolved code from the Avidians and put it in real robots. For example, they took they took some light sensing code that was evolved and they put it into a, a Roomba. You know the uh, yeah. the little robots that vacuum. So and, that's uh, where the silence and it worked. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I think this whole research you know, paradigm is very interesting, essentially creating digital environments and digital creatures that live in them and create conditions that encourage them to evolve. They reproduce, they have variation, there's selective pressures, it's basically all you need. What, what'll be really fascinating is as these 
types of evolutionary programs get more and more sophisticated and and in more and more ways resemble actual you know living environment is is listening to the creationist and intelligent design guys get more and more pathetic and desperate in their attempts to deny the implications of this research you know yeah oh yeah it'll happen we we've seen it before with other de- with other scientific development uh, the next item is um about Proximal intercessory prayer. Have you guys heard about this? I read about it on Neurologica. Yeah. <laughs> what? Never heard of it. Proximal intercessory prayer. No, no, no. Neurologica. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> a zing. <laughs> praying close to somebody, right? You're, you're proximal to them. This was one of these uh, you know, totally worthless, crappy studies that, do- that doesn't show anything. <laughs> <laughs> that then gets spread around the uh, the internet as sh- you showing that prayer or intercessory prayer works, but it was such a horrible study; it just doesn't show anything. Essentially, uh, what the researchers did was it, it, in an unblinded way, right? So it's, there's no control group, no blinding, no control group, right? You get that? No control group. They looked at the effects of of you know praying for somebody but also like laying touching them laying on hands and praying for their healing on their vision and their hearing and guess what they reported that their hearing and their and their vision improved what a shock no. what a shock uh-huh. inconceivable what's really interesting is it's like in a footnote in this study that the the researchers had to go to some distant village in Africa in order to find these results and and they, when they did it in the United States or elsewhere, it didn't work. And so they concluded that, um, you know, they had some really lame hand-waving conclusion about the fa- the fact that these people had the greater need or something. They Essentially what they were doing was eliminating a lot of negative data from their report. Exactly. They were cherry-picking, even within their own report, even in, <laughs> in their own small, unblinded, no-control group crappy study. So they cherry-picked <laughs> their own data. Yeah. Like, how can we make yeah. this crappier? Right. You know. <laughs> so, what I found one point I found interesting about this. So, essentially, the intercessory prayer literature studies looking at the effect of you know one person praying for the well-being of another at, on their health outcomes is negative. You know, praying doesn't work, even though every time a study shows maybe some you know random positive noise, it gets reported as prayer works, but then it never gets replicated. The other, st- the better design studies are negative or the results are inconsistent. They look at many different outcomes and only one is positive, but it's a different one in every study. So again, it's random noise. It's the kind of noise you expect to see with no effect, with a null effect. So what, what these researchers did, and this is again, again a very typical t- kind of progression that we're seeing in this kind of research, they decided to invent some reason why they need to do an unblinded study and and here their reason here is that they need to that maybe you need to be physically close to the person you're praying for oh cuz proximity well, matters uh, with with prayer yes oh, so you put a you put a dummy behind this sheet you put a real human behind that sheet you have a, well, a couple i mean Right. Yeah, but they need to they need to get in their grill and put their hands on their eyes and say you know and cast out the demons and and have Jesus heal them. That then then it works. But really, it's just a hand waving explanation for all right. Controlled blinded studies didn't work, so we're going to do uncontrolled unblinded studies and and justify it by saying you need to be close to the person and touching them. Of course, you can't blind that. Right. It's just like saying 
like with acupuncture, you know, the acupuncture research is saying, well, the, the controlled blinded studies are all negative. So we have to do practical studies and study the way it's, it's performed in the real world, which just so happens to mean that they have to be unblinded uh, so that we can get the positive results that we're looking for. Is anyone claiming this is science, Steve? Oh, yeah. Are they claiming it is? Yeah, yeah this, being, wow. this is being presented in their, in their press release and then being you know, regurgitated by a lot of outlets as studies showing that prayer works. Terrible, yeah. very terrible study. But on to some more serious work, Evan. You're going to tell us about the solution to the Bermuda Triangle mystery. Ooh. Finally, after all these years. After all these years, finally it is solved. We have figured it out. No more study, no more research, no more speculation. It is over. And the culprit is apparently... Guess. Enormous eruptions. <laughs> yeah, more specifically, enormous eruptions of methane bubbles. Ooh. Yes. Mega bubbles. The, yeah, mega bubbles. Apparently, scientists <laughs> have explained that the area that, compromise, that comprises the Bermuda Triangle area is very, very heavily active in its uh, eruptions of methane bubbles, more so than other places on the Earth. Mm. And that probably or possibly is the reason why so many ships and airplanes and all these other uh, stories about these uh, vessels disappearing suddenly, that the gas is the culprit. The gas all of a sudden erupts up from the ocean floor, through the water, swallows the ship in the air. Thirty right, gets, these, gets all these airplanes in, the, in its path, swallows it up, never to be found again. No radio signals or anything like that, and it is these bubbles. Now, uh, you you'd think this is, I, you, I, Steve. I know you've heard of this before. What do they call it? Oceanic flatulence? Is that the uh, is that the, is that the <laughs> term? It, it's been that I, I've looked around. This is an old this is an old theory. Uh, this is nothing new. Um, I suppose the only new purpose behind it or the reason it's a recent report is because the indications are now that there's higher concentrations of these uh, methane bubbles to be found within this region of the ocean. But it doesn't really uh, hold water <laughs> as, far as, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure a lot of skeptics w- would agree. And there are actually some people, as I've searched around the internet, who are proponents of uh, all sorts of crazy explanations about what's going on in the Bermuda Triangle. Even they think that this is uh, kind of a silly idea. Well, I mean, they, would, they won't like it because it's not paranormal, right? I mean, if you're a Bermuda Triangle act, what a proponent. Right. But here's the thing: like, there's no, there's, there's no effect. There is yeah. no Bermuda Triangle effect. It's been looked into right. years ago. It's, it, it's been done. We've looked at the data, and the data tell us that there aren't any more ships sinking in the Bermuda Triangle than any other similarly sized chunk of ocean. Right. The amount of traffic that the Bermuda Triangle gets is completely like the number of accidents is completely appropriate for that amount of traffic. Yeah, totally Rebecca, this no effect. Rebecca, this solves it though. What are you saying? Yeah. It solves a problem that doesn't exist. Exactly. <laughs> Rule number one. Charlie. Don't propose a solution to a phenomenon that doesn't exist. But Steve, they spent millions of dollars on this study. Well, Come listen, on. this is my interpretation of this, right? You have some researchers doing you know, very legitimate research looking at you know, this particular phenomenon of, of methane gas ejections from the ocean. And they decide to get, to get some press by tying it to the Bermuda Triangle. That's it. 
So let's let's tie our obscure research to a popular notion like the Bermuda Triangle, and we'll yeah, get some press. And they did, and it worked. But mm-hmm. but their connection here, first of all, they either, they gloss over the fact that the Bermuda Triangle doesn't exist as a phenomenon, as Rebecca was saying. But also, they're speculating that if these if this bubble hit a ship, it would cause the ship to sink into the ocean. I'm not, I'm not sure I buy that. Um, but even if it's true. Yeah. They didn't make any attempt at trying to calculate what the odds were of right. a bubble having a direct hit on a ship. You know, how big are these bubbles, and what, what's the odds in the vast ocean that it's going to have a direct hit on a ship? How often is that going to happen that cause it to sink? And, and would that account for any significant number of lost ships or planes, you know? That's exactly right. I learned a lot about methane hydrate, though. Right. Which is which? Which is you know actually pretty interesting, pretty fascinating. Yeah, you know I wonder though if a gigantic gas bubble was released from the bottom of the ocean, you know what would happen to that gas bubble as it rises through the ocean? Would it diffuse a lot? Would it remain one big bubble? And then if it did hit a ship, I mean I bet you it could sink a, a fairly large ship if if the water all of a sudden. The properties yeah. of the water changed enough, you know, if it became so infused with bubbles and everything. It, it could, sure. It, it I'm could, sure you, that- yes. Jay, there's there's footage on YouTube of that very experiment in which they uh, release a bunch of gas underneath a ship in, in, in the ocean. And eventually it does, uh, if it hits it just right, like one side of the ship, but not in the, not in the center of the ship, but one end of the ship catches this influx of either one large bubble or lots and you know, billions of tiny bubbles the ship will eventually be, be drawn in. And, and yeah. drawn well, it's got to hit it's, just it, right. So it has to hit just right, and it's not an instant, and it wasn't an instant process. It took yeah. several minutes to sink this ship. Certainly enough time for yeah. someone to you know, get a radio signal yeah. off, hey, saying, hey, something's going on here. Right. Help us, help us. And you where know, are all the near misses? Did the Mythbusters do that? No, BBC last month did a, ran a special on this very phenomenon, in fact. Is this an explanation for what could be happening in the Bermuda Triangle? Well, you know, the first huge red flag that went off when I read this article was flat out. They're talking about the the bubbles, you know, possibly affecting boats, but then don't say, but this doesn't explain why airplanes at 20,000 feet were crashing. Well, I looked into that a little bit, and apparently the answer, their answer, Jay, is that it only takes a little bit of the methane gas to get inside the engine of a plane in order for it to conk out and cause it to stall, essentially. And you, then you start, you know, heading down, and you can't recover, you can't restart the engine in, in time before you hit the water. And apparently it's a, it's a what would be, I think, considered a, a negligible amount of methane. doesn't take much. Why? Well, we know no, that's but, bullshit, but, Evan, because the amount of farts that happen on a typical airplane, <laughs> th- that would bring the plane down immediately. Like on takeoff, the plane would be crashing. Thank goodness the cabin is separate from the engines. Yeah. Why, why would a little methane take out a plane? Well, I guess they need oxygen in, in the intake valve, right? It, stall, yeah, it, stall, it stalls out the engine. And how how fleeting would that be? You know, risk- you're traveling at three, four, five hundred miles an hour, a, a tiny little blip like that. And you would have to be so precise, like Steve was saying before, in in its in the hit or the burst of methane that it would have to have to hit. It, you, you know, the odds are yeah. astronomical. That Huge it would ever, volumes ever of uh, of methane would have to be coming out of the ocean. And also, like at twenty thousand feet, you know, or thirty thousand feet. Well, I mean, they they must be talking about planes flying lower than that, not not jets at their at their cruising altitude. Yeah. 
That's right. They were talking, you know, specifically the flight nine, the famous flight nineteen case, right, in which these yeah. what P fifty two planes were uh, doing uh, exercises off the, off the coast, you know. And we're t- we're not talking about jet technology, you know, just trad- you know older airplane technologies. Airplanes were only going maybe a couple hundred miles an hour at at, at fastest. Yeah. So you're talking about an older style of engine as well. Right. Uh, so, but again, it's a non mystery. I mean, you know, plane, non mystery planes crash in the ocean. So That's Rebecca, right. there you go. They solved it. Yeah. Good. Good. I'm so glad. But what I want to know, they, they what I want to know, yeah. is how can I use spells to enhance my booty? Oh, well, I can help you with that. How oh, can you? Uh, yeah. It's called Viagra, Steve. <laughs> it's, called, on it. it's called spell check. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, so on eBay, you can you can purchase a lot of interesting things on eBay, and um, I was really excited to find that I could purchase a booty enhancement spell cast by a powerful Wiccan witch for only Mm $8.95. This is an actual witch who claims to be able to cast a spell that will, and I quote, help you develop the sexy, curvy booty (laughs) you always wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are a lot of pictures of quite fantastic booties i love, um, I love and <laughs> love you can, how she says you got i gotta cast it on you up to three times yeah that's it oh you yeah can, you can choose um a single cast a double cast or a triple cast also multiple known as castings. booty cast <laughs> multiple <laughs> castings make a spell more powerful so you know if you're really out of shape i guess um you may need to order up to three so this is a woman who says that she's been a spellcaster for over 20 years. And what happens is when you purchase a spell and, you know, she's been on eBay for some time now. She's, and she has a lot of different kinds of spells, like love spells and things like that as well. Um, yeah, unless so when a, you purchase a breast enhancement spell and so right. there's, there's a picture of some, a woman from woman's, you know, breasts and there's a button mm-hmm. on there that says click to enlarge, which I always find amusing. <laughs> <laughs> and it really is it really is just about that easy um because what happens is you purchase it and then um in the memo of your PayPal payment you just include your name your date of birth and your desired results and within 24 to 48 hours she says depending upon the complexity of your spell she'll just send you an eBay message confirming the fact that she's completed the spell right. depending on how that, flat your ass is is more like right right <laughs> but um, it says free shipping here yes <laughs> what, what, um, what are they shipping oh, that's good it is free shipping um she ships the spell via the um supernatural plane i guess yeah. what do they call it what's that thing that they it's ether Oh, yeah, it's the EPS. Yeah. No, it's the Owl Network. Yeah, network. <laughs> right. The yeah, Kashuk Hedwig. Pile. All right, comes. guys. Now, even scarier, on this particular auction that she has, mm-hmm. not not all the other enhancement auctions she has, but just on this one, she sold eighteen of them. Wow. Mm, yeah, and she says um, she's actually been very successful. Um, I just want to mention quickly that um, she says that. You know, she uses candles, herbs, oils, gemstones, tools, and some other items to bring about your results. And she says, some of my clients say they experience a tingly sensation while I cast the spell. Mm. So, you know, if you're going for the butt lift or whatever, you know, just be prepared to be groped by the supernatural. 
it's quite disturbing because it's not just that she sold um, that many booty enhancements, but she has 2,772 feedback thingies, uh, feedback score. Oh, yeah. I love reading those feedback She's What's your percentage? Yeah, she's had um, 99.8 positive feedback, oh 99.8% positive. God. She she sold 40 of the make her hot and horny sex spell. I'm not surprised um, because there's a lot of sad people on the internet. She's had in the past year she's had 681 positive feedback results, five neutral and only one negative. And the one negative is she asks for positive feedback and promises a second spell, absolute zero results after a month. And she responded and said uh, she would have helped if the buyer had asked. And then the buyer responds and says she received threats from her. <laughs> so there's that one negative. And then the neutral are all like, well, it's not working yet, but maybe if I give it a little longer, it'll start working. You know what the incantation of this spell is? Mm. Caveat emptor. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then and then 681 positive feedback. People who are purchasing this stuff and then saying, yeah, you know what? My butt does look a little better. So oh. I guess that's just a, you know, the power of positive thinking, I guess, uh, to fool yourself into thinking that your butt looks better. <laughs> that's amazing. This woman is selling literally nothing. And she still has a great a great feedback mm-hmm. on all this stuff that she's supposedly doing. It just blows my mind. Yeah. It's actually genius. I um I asked her. Yeah. I I emailed her a few questions, um, and she just responded. Actually, first I asked her if she had any before and after photos showing the effects of her booty enhancement spell, and um, she responded and said, "I do not give out pictures of my clients," uh-huh. which is a, an interesting answer considering that you know they're plastic surgeons yeah, I was not say, everywhere who, you, can, you can flip through uh, a catalog in a pat plastic surgeon's right. office right but no she doesn't give out she she would rather post um you know pictures of random models butt mm-hmm. models i guess um, testimonials i'm sure oh yeah and then the second list the second question i asked was um I said, the listing says you accept returns within 60 days. If I judge that my booty is not sufficiently enhanced in that time, can I get a full refund? And she says, the 60-day policy states a store credit. Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't work, I can get something else that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if that doesn't work, I can get something else that doesn't work. So, yeah, caveat emptor. Caveat emptor. Here's the le- here's her legal disclaimer. Mm. I'm required to state the following: You must be okay. 18 years old to push to purchase. Psychic, paranormal, haunted, and/or magical items are for entertainment purposes only. I am not responsible for any paranormal activity that you may or may not experience. The quack Keyword, Miranda may not experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, entertainment purposes only. I think people should pay attention to those three words. Mm-hmm. Oh, but then right under that, serious inquiries only, please. <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm getting mixed messages here. Right, right. Yeah. We are joined now by Reese Morgan. Reese, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, and Reese, you're joining us because recently um, you had a very interesting encounter on a support uh, group forum for Crohn's disease. You were recently diagnosed with Crohn's disease yourself, and we should say that you're you're 15 years old, but you are 
a skeptic. And yep. you, you went on this support form. And tell us about your experience there. Um, well, basically, I was ostracized from the community for um, posting about Miracle Mineral Solution, which is actually an industrial bleach. And um, people are advocating this as a treatment for Crohn's. And, and you didn't think that was a good idea to take industrial strength bleach? Um, no, no, not at all. Yeah. Um, well, basically, what happened is um, a few days ago, I remembered people mentioning Miracle Mineral Solution um, on Crohn's Forum. So I decided to Google it and look it up, see what it was. The second post on Google, or the second result on Google, um, I found was an FDA warning saying about how um, Miracle Mineral Solution was dangerous and that people should throw it out because it's an industrial bleach. It causes nausea, diarrhea, and um, if continued taken, um, it can cause extreme dehydration. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Crohn's disease, can you can you tell us a little bit about that and why? Um, people on a support forum might be willing to go so far as to drink industrial strength bleach? Crohn's disease, it's an inflammatory disease in the um, gut. It can affect other parts of the body as well, um, which helps it be diagnosed. Things like joint pain. It's an autoimmune disease, so it means that the immune system is attacking the body, which is why it causes the inflammation. Um, it's a form of inflammatory bowel disease, the other type being ulcerative colitis. But basically it can cause abdominal pain and um, uh, malabsorption problems with food, so you can lose a lot of weight on it. It's generally not a very nice illness and it causes a lot of other bowel problems as well, such as extreme, extreme diarrhea, you know, extreme urgency when it ha comes to going to the toilets, things like that. I think the reason a lot of people might turn to these snake oil cures is because they're willingly ignorant about the facts they a lot of people have gone through a lot of treatment and a lot of it has started to fail for example uh, drugs can't work forever in some people you know they lose their efficacy over time so as these drugs um start to wear off their efficacy a lot of people to try turning to alternative medicine which isn't necessarily actually going to cure them but people will willingly be ignorant about the facts so that they can think so that they can have hope that this treatment will work. And so we're very interested in your experience on this forum because what uh, the, the story uh, reinforced something that I had been suspecting from from my own experience, and that is that the promoters of various supplements or alternative medicines, not just true believers, but also people who are making money by selling it, are infiltrating these forums and doing that as a way of not only promoting their products, but squelching any skepticism that's brought up about their products. And that seems to be exactly what you experienced, right? Yeah. Um, well, one particular user um, on the forum, D. Burgi, he was a very strong advocate of Miracle Mineral Solution, and he'd actually been giving out unqualified medical advice to a user. Now, this this other user, um, who I can't remember their um, username, they had basically said, oh, I've got a really bad throat, should I start taking a mineral, Miracle Mineral Solution? Now, I mean, take you know, gargling and drinking bleach for a sore throat doesn't exactly sound like a good idea. So um, D. Burgi then posted, oh, yes, that's a brilliant idea, you should actually do that. So this person went ahead and started gargling and drinking bleach to try and clear up their bad throat. Then 
their throat got worse and they said, gee, I really hope you're right about this, D. Burgie. But um, D. Burgie said, oh, yes, it's definitely all right. It's, you know, it's normal. It's perfectly normal that your throat's getting worse. Things have to get worse before they get better, etc. Um, and so advised them to keep on drinking and gargling this bleach. Um, the next post I read by this person was saying, help me, please, I can hardly swallow my own spit. So, right. clearly, you know, something... And then they were still listening to D. Burgie. D. Burgie still told them to drink this industrial bleach. Right, because whatever happens, it's all good. It's supposed to happen. There's, yeah. there's never any adjustment based upon the actual response to the treatment that they're recommending. Oh, no, exactly. Everything that um, was happening to this person just has to definitely be normal effects, you know. Yeah. So, so on the so on this forum, you started saying, "Hey, what about this FDA warning uh, here?" And and how did people on the forum respond to you? Well, to start with, um, people actually, I got a good response with the first post. The user said, "Wowzer!" So I thought, "Oh, phew! Thank goodness, that's one person who's not going to be using it." However, then they they quickly turned it into an anti-conventional medicine thread, um, attacking you know, modern medicine, saying, oh, you neglect to mention Remicade's side effects. Um, Remicade is another anti... It's a, it's a Crohn's um, drug. It helps reduce inflammation. Um, but then, yes, Remicade is dangerous. Um, it Well, sort of. It has got um, bad side effects, but they're rare, and people, you know, are informed of those side effects, whereas when it comes to... A miracle mineral solution, people aren't. They're told that nausea, sickness, and diarrhea is actually perfectly normal for, um, for it, and they're not side effects, they're effects that you should be looking out for. Actually, Jim Humble, the inventor of miracle mineral solution, claims that the nausea is a sign that the body is getting rid of um, toxins and pathogens. <laughs> God, really? So, Reese, but then uh, as you sort of push this point a little bit, this led to ultimately you getting banned from the forums. Yeah, um, I was temporarily banned for 10 days um, because I had allegedly been rude to people. One person started talking about homeopathy, which I quickly rubbished and linked to sciencebasedmedicine.org. Um, and because they started talking about the placebo effect in animals, they said, oh, I've used homeopathy in my horse, therefore homeopathy is good. Animals can't surely feel, surely they can't feel the placebo effect. It generally turned into an anti-conventional medicine thread. Which it's, a, it's amazing how quickly they go there. I mean, it's, a, it's a total non sequitur, but that's all they got, right, is yeah. logical fallacies. Uh, well, Reese, you know, thank you for being a, a brave young skeptic and standing up on the forums. Um, you are part of that, you know, army of skeptics that we need out there. We always need that voice of reason. Uh, we, we, you know, obviously we're mainly preaching to the choir here. It's actually the the the, the people that listen to us, like you, that uh, are getting a lot of the work done. Just again, just being that voice of reason and having the courage to say, "Hey, this doesn't sound right." Let's apply a little bit of, of logic here. Yeah, and also we can um, stop people from necessarily taking over these threads, for example, when people mm -hmm. do post about warnings from the FDA, you know, stop these anti-conventional medicine people from taking over. Well, Reese, uh, thanks for joining us and, and explaining your story. It's very enlightening. And uh, go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> it's late. What are you up doing up so late? Who's keeping you up so late? Your parents should be furious. <laughs> well, keep up the good work, Reese. Nice talking with you. 
Thank you. It's good to talk to you all too. Well, Evan, please tell us about last week's Who's That Noisy? I will tell you about last week's Who's That Noisy, but first I'm going to play it for you. Then, science discovered that gasoline was liquid horsepower. You know what has happened since. Oil and gasoline we demand today furnishes employment to millions of people. And these are only two products obtained from crude petroleum. I love that accent. I don't know what it is. It's a mid-Atlantic I mean, accent, isn't it? But it's more, it's, it's also, you only get that from like 1940s, 1950s, you know, science reels. Well, yeah, that's, I mean? that's the mid-Atlantic accent, though. Yeah. It was only um, popular in the 40s and 50s because of movie stars. The gentleman was born in a place called Woodington, Ohio. Lowell Jackson Thomas. Yeah, American, Lowell Thomas. Yep. Anybody American writer. It? Nobody got it. Nobody. Nobody. You stumped 70,000 people, Evan. Well, it wasn't me who stumped them. It was actually our friend Evil Eye who sent in that submission oh, yes. to me. And uh, very awesome. good very good job. He, he is. Hello, That's why Evil he, Eye. he didn't guess on the forums because he had exactly. sent it Exactly. Yes, yeah. he did. And he did a very fine job. Nobody not got guessing. it right. Yeah. <laughs> not guessing. <laughs> good uh, job. Lowell Thomas, an American writer, broadcaster, and traveler best known as the man who made Lawrence of Arabia famous. Good job. Tell us about this week. This week. Here we go. Okay. That was it. There you have it. (laughs) Like a cork almost. (laughs) Oh, I love this noisy when I found it. I stumbled across it almost by accident, and I was like, I must use that. You stepped on it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right, it's interesting. Thank you, Evan. Good luck, everyone. Well, let's go on to our interview. We are joined now by Professor Aubrey de Grey. Aubrey, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thank you very much. Great to be on the show. And uh, Professor DeGray is an English author and theoretician in the field of gerontology and is the chief science officer of the SENS Foundation, or uh, Strategies for Engineered Negligible Senescence. Essentially, uh, your goal is to reduce the effects of aging. I, I know you're, uh, very, that's what you're most well known for, but your discussions of, of all of that are, are pretty available on the Internet. But can you, um, to start off, just give us a, a quick summary of, of what your research, research program is all about? Sure, yes. The main thing I really want to say is a slight correction of the way you describe my work. I'm not really looking to slow down aging. I'm looking to actually reverse it. Mm-hmm. About a decade ago, I started to think about the possibility that repairing the molecular and cellular damage that accumulates throughout life and eventually causes age-related ill health might actually be easier than the more conventional approach of trying to slow down the accumulation of that damage in the first place. Mm-hmm. It sounds rather counterintuitive to think that actually reversing aging might be easier than slowing it down, but I realized that when we look at the details of what that damage is, what we know and what we don't know about how it accumulates, then um, it actually did make more sense to look at repair, which essentially means applying regenerative medicine to the problem of aging, than to look at simply slowing down the accumulation of the damage. 
Right, and and your basic approach, which uh, sounds like a bit of a brute force approach, is essentially to identify all of the metabolic consequences of aging. That's right. Yes, you could, you could, I, I, I don't really object to your calling it a brute force approach. Um, yeah. I, I think a more complementary way of putting it would be a divide and conquer approach. Okay. I think classifying the various types of molecular cellular damage is the first thing to do, enumerating them and grouping them into categories with, such that within each category the same sort of therapy ought to work for each example. That's essentially why I came up and how I came up with these seven major categories that I usually talk about. And, and quickly, what are those seven categories? So the first one is loss of cells. In other words, when cells die and they're not automatically replaced by the division of other cells in the body. The second one is the accumulation of cells because cells are not dying when they're supposed to. There are various types of cells that are supposed to turn over and sometimes they forget how to die. Um, the third one is the accumulation of cells when they're dying when they should necessarily, but they are dividing when they shouldn't. So that's basically cancer. Uh, number four is the accumulation of mutations in our mitochondria. The mitochondria is this special part of the cell that's the only part that has its own DNA uh, outside our chromosomes. And that, uh, the mutations accumulate there, and we believe that that's quite important for a lot of aspects of aging. Number five is the accumulation of simple molecular garbage, essentially byproducts of normal essential metabolic processes that, for whatever reason, the cell doesn't have the machinery either to break down or to excrete. And so those mole molecules are simply sequestered, and eventually they accumulate to a level that gets in the way of the rest of the working of the cell. Number six is the accumulation of, of molecular garbage again, but this time it's outside the cell, in the spaces between cells. And number seven is also in the extracellular space, in the extracellular matrix, not the accumulation of molecules that we don't want, but the accumulation of chemical bonds between molecules that we do want. So essentially, new chemical bonds that reduce the elasticity of the extracellular matrix. Those are the seven things. Aubrey, what, are the, what do you think the odds are of eventually coming up with maybe eight or nine or maybe number ten um, in addition to those lists? Right, this is an excellent question, and I certainly agree that my assertion that this categorization is exhaustive is a, is a pretty bold assertion. I think, however, that there are two reasons for believing that we, it may be quite a long time, if ever, before we come up with number eight. One of them is a biological reason. Um, basically, one can start from the simple observation that accumulation of damage can only happen in long-lived biological structures, such as DNA, for example. If you've got a, a short-lived protein that is created and has a job to do in the cell, for example, and it undergoes some oxidation, for example, and then it gets broken down, and the undamaged amino acids are reused, and the damaged ones are excreted, then that damage is gone, so it's not accumulating. So we can just look at the long-lived structures in the, in the body, and we can just break the body down. We can say, you know, what are we made of? We're made of cells and stuff between cells. What are cells made of? And so on. And you get pretty much the list I just gave you. Um, the other way that we can look at it is by looking at what, how long ago we discovered these seven. How long, how long gerontologists, people who study the biology of aging, have been addressing this question and uh, what they've come up with. And the answer is that every single one of those seven things has been a major topic of interest of gerontologists for at least 28 years now. So that's quite a long time in biology. You know, you would think that we would have come up with, some, uh, with number eight by now, given how much more we know about how biological systems work than we did back then. Aubrey, what do you think the, the next three or four findings are going to be that we could see a dramatic help in, in overall human health? Do you 
think there's like a like the next one or two things that are going to occur in modern science that we're going to find that you can predict? Yeah, that's actually quite a hard question. And it really comes back to what I was saying a couple of questions ago about this being a divide-and-conquer strategy. Because it's a divide-and-conquer strategy, we don't expect this strategy to really deliver results until we've got it all reasonably wo- working reasonably well, all seven parts. Because, you know, each of them could kill us on its own quite easily. And each of them, in fact, has a propensity to kill us on its own that rises exponentially with age. So uh, it's just as if we were to completely eliminate heart disease, for example. That would be great because heart disease kills more people than anything else uh, if we count heart attacks and strokes together. Unfortunately, that would only add a very small proportion, maybe five years, to people's actual longevity because other things are coming up on the rails, so to speak, um, and, and with increasing incidence. So it's the same sort of thing with this approach to combating aging. And there may be other approaches that may get us the odd uh, year or two, especially there may be improvements in diet and in lifestyle that will help to do that. Though, of course, at the moment, there's a great deal of worry that the opposite is happening, that there's an obesity epidemic and so on. Um, But I don't really see anything coming along anytime soon that will give a dramatic increase in the postponement of age-related ill health until we get these regenerative techniques really working. Um, can I just ask a couple follow-up questions on the on the, the biological question, then we can move on to some, some more of the sociological questions. So sure. in, in the list of the seven things that you mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned uh, mutations accumulating in mitochondrial DNA, but if I heard correctly, you didn't mention accumulation of mutations in uh, nuclear DNA. Is that That's correct? right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, very good question. So, um, of course, mutations do accumulate in the nuclear DNA, and it's reasonable to suppose that those mutations might actually have some effect on age, uh, uh, make some contribution to age-related ill health. But quite some time ago, I started looking closely at the data that people had produced in this area, and I began to wonder whether, in fact, we might be getting some sort of free lunch there. And I've come to a very firm conclusion on this now, which I published a few years ago. Um, Essentially, my logic says that there's one particular type of ill health that mutations of the nuclear DNA certainly do cause, which is cancer. And I mentioned, Mm -hmm. of course, cancer is one of my seven things. Now, the thing about cancer is that it can kill us with just one cell going seriously AWOL, going seriously bad. Whereas everything that does not involve the cell cycle can only kill us if the um, mutations affect some high proportion of the cells in a given tissue. So uh, that's, that's a simplification of the argument, but basically what I came up with, what I, what I concluded, was that this means that the risk of cancer has forced evolution to create really, really high-quality DNA repair and maintenance machinery that makes mutations accumulate so slowly that there's no other way apart from cancer that they can actually hurt us in, a, in anything like a currently normal lifetime. So basically, if we can really, really kill cancer, then we don't have to worry about mutations in nuclear DNA. Well, is it also possible, though, that, that the, the fix for the risk of cancer is not DNA repair, but killing cancer cells when they crop up? That's more or less what, that's right. That's more or less what I proposed, actually. I've proposed that we can not exactly kill them as they crop up, but actually preemptively put them into a state where they will keel over before they divide sufficiently often to actually kill us. 
essentially by uh, completely eliminating the possibility for them to maintain their telomeres, the ends of the chromosomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, that's exactly, what I'm, that's exactly what I'm saying. So basically we don't try to actually repair the nuclear mutations themselves at all. We let the mutations happen, we deal with cancer in a, in a different way, and the mutations that do happen simply don't matter because the ones that cause cancer go away when the cancer goes away and the ones that don't cause cancer are accumulating so slowly that they don't matter anyway. But my, my point was that you're, you're um, inferring that they're accumulating slowly because of the, the rate of cancer is slow, but maybe the, the rate of mutations that can lead to cancer is higher than, you, than you're supposing, but just the body's immune system attacks and kills those cancer cells most of the time when they crop up. It's absolutely certain that the immune system does indeed kill most cancer cells um, when they crop up, and indeed that's just one of the many very clever defenses that that the body has against cancer. And uh, if your implication is that this means that my argument about the one cell versus a lot of cells might not be so strong as it sounds, then you're absolutely right. That's one of the complications that makes the argument not so strong. But I've looked very closely at exactly that argument, and it doesn't eliminate the argument entirely. It basically means that rather than non-cancer mutations killing us when we reach the age of a million, they might kill us when we reach the age of a thousand. It certainly doesn't mean, in my view, that they would kill us when we reach the age of 120. And you mentioned telomeres. Now, is is telomere length not a problem for um, ultimate uh, cell survival? We don't think so. Um, there's obviously been a lot of debate about this question in the gerontology community over many years, but most people now believe that telomeres in cells that really need to divide a lot, in particular the stem cells of rapidly renewing tissues like the blood or the skin or the gut, actually, exp- actually are maintained because they, these cells do express a trace amount of telomerase. And actually, for that reason, they are more prone to becoming cancer cells than other cells are. However, there is also definite evidence to say that cells do experience a mild shortening of telomeres during life. And there are a couple of tissues, in particular the the white blood cells of the immune system, in which this may play a role in the um, aging process. So definitely we need to look into that. And it's possible that if we were to, uh, to develop the therapies that I'm talking about against cancer, that we would need to do adjunct things in order to um, address these problems. In fact, I will go further. It's actually certain that we will need to address the elimination, sorry, the shortening of telomeres in the tissues I just mentioned if we do the therapy that I'm talking about because if we do this therapy then those tissues will not be able to express even this trace amount of telomerase in their stem cells. But that's incorporated into the, into the proposal that I put forward about eight years ago and I'm still pretty sure after a great deal of scrutiny that the proposal is viable. So and just for, for our listeners, uh, the, the telomeres are basically the, the, the little nibs or the ends on chromosomes and if they are shortened every time a chromosome reproduces, that puts an ultimate limit on how many times the cell can reproduce. So for cells that are essentially immortal, that can't continue to reproduce over and over again, like stem cells, there needs to be a mechanism to, to add a little bit of length to the telomeres, and that's the telomerase. That you that's mentioned. exactly right, yes. Yeah. Um, so, but it also brings up the bigger concept, that it, which um, comes up a lot, and that is that there are some cells in our bodies that are essentially immortal. Mature, so mature differentiated cells are essentially not immortal. They, they cannot reproduce themselves over and over again. 
but there are stem cells which, in order to function, need to be immortal. Then there are mechanisms in place that allow them to do that. And the ultimate immortal cells are our germ cells, right? I mean, essentially, the cells that we're made of are the descendants of cells that were alive billions of years ago, right? So, yeah, absolutely right. So that there's no reason. So we know that cells can survive forever, essentially. But the the trick is that most of the cells that we're made of are not those kinds of cells. So um, is part of your, your thinking about about this how to essentially figure out the way what we need to do to to make mature cells behave like stem cells without causing cancer? Um, I would say it's more the other way around, actually. It's getting stem cells to behave like mature cells, but get away with it by periodically replenishing those stem cells with new ones to replace the ones that are no longer immortal. So you, you could, in essence, accomplish all of the things that you need to accomplish, again, rather than going in and fixing each one at a time by simply just replacing an old cell with a new cell. Um, yeah, sort of. First of all, remember that two of my five, two of my seven categories involved the extracellular space. Yeah. So that wouldn't be addressed by replacing individual cells. Um, secondly, uh, in in many cases, the problem is having too many cells. So uh, we need to get rid of cells rather than replace them. Um, and thirdly, in many cases, especially in the case of the brain, and probably also in respect in, in the case of the skeletal muscle it may simply be very difficult to replace the cells without, um, well, to replace them rapidly anyway, without seriously impairing the function of the organs that they're part of, or the tissues right. that they're part of. So it may actually just be simpler to repair the cells internally rather than replace them. However, you're absolutely right that all of these options need to be looked at case by case, organ by organ. It may, for right. example, turn out that certain organs, like the heart, had a lot of things going wrong in them, loss of cells in some cases, accumulation of extracellular garbage in other cases, across the whole heart, and it may just be simpler, quite soon, to just grow a new heart in, in the laboratory using cells taken from the, from the individual from elsewhere and just do an organ transplant. I'm certainly not in any way averse to that, but of course it is a more invasive approach, so it's something that we might have difficulty applying to people who are really old. So, and, and growing, if you take it up from the cellular level to the tissue or organ level, uh, like growing a liver, growing a heart, growing lungs, that certainly would solve all of the all of the problems of aging that you mentioned, at least for that organ. That's right. Of course, the, 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 doing that for the brain would rather defeat the object, however. Yeah, right. So the brain's <laughs> obviously the one thing that where that that would never be an option. Although you could think of, you know, enhancing the ability of the brain to produce stem cells to make more connections and just slowly sort of replace the the, the uh, neurons that are there. You've absolutely got it, and I can certainly see that as a viable scenario in due course, just so long as, as you quite rightly say, the replacement is very slow so that the new neurons can, if you like, learn from the old ones and integrate themselves into the cognitive network in an, in an appropriate way. So, Aubrey, do you, you ever sit around your house after work and go, you know, all I need is $2 billion and I can get the job done. Is there is there a number in your head or some type of like holy grail dollar amount or something that you want to achieve that you think would actually push this thing forward a lot faster? Oh, yes, and I'm quite sure. I, I assure you that I do not sit around my house thinking these things. I say them all the time. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the number is basically $1 billion. Uh, $100 million a year for 10 years is what I think we would need in order to make sure that the scientific 
problems that exist were the, were the rate-limiting step rather than financial considerations being rate-limiting. Um, what I think we would be able to achieve with that, I should clarify, is not the full-blown development of these therapies for human beings. What I think we'd be able to develop in that sort of time frame for that sort of amount of money is proof of concept, unequivocal proof of concept in the laboratory in mice. Specifically, I think we're going to be able to take normal mice, perhaps unusually long-lived mice, naturally long-lived mice, that live maybe three years on average, and actually do nothing to them at all until they're already two years old, so already in middle age, and then do a whole bunch of things to them, basically the things that I've listed for you, uh, and see whether we can get those mice to live an extra couple of years over and above how long they would otherwise have lived. So in other words, three more years rather than only one more year. I think that that's likely to be possible within 10 years from now if the money were available. And I also think that if we were to achieve that, then the conclusion from the scientific community would be unequivocal, that they would feel that, yes, this is a proper proof of concept. It's only a matter of time before we can do it for humans. Once that happens, game over. I can retire. My job will be done. <laughs> because basically everyone will want to do it. The money will be no object. There will be a proper full-blown war on aging and people who are much better than me at all the things I'm supposed to be good at will be able to take over. And you've written uh, pretty extensively about what the multiple uh, obstacles are to a higher level of funding for biogerontology. Can you tell us about that? Well, so one of the obstacles is that, it in, that, that progress in this area involves, in my view, the bringing together of scientific expertise from disciplines that have not historically worked together. Specifically, as I mentioned right at the beginning, um, I think that the way that we're going to make serious progress here is by applying the principles of regenerative medicine to the problem of aging. And regenerative medicine has been developed mainly for other purposes, for the treatment of acute damage like you know, spinal cord injury, for example. Conversely, people who are what you might call card-carrying biogerontologists um, have not worked historically in regenerative medicine and they have not been exposed to the major advances that have occurred there. So a lot of the challenges that I've been addressing over the past decade have amounted to essentially bringing these two communities together and getting them to educate each other and thereby appreciate the um, potential that this approach has. That's a uh, a campaign that has only very recently begun to bear fruit with the um, gradual uh, coming out, so to speak, of a number of people in each of those communities basically um, endorsing the approach that I've been advocating. The second thing that's a really massive obstacle is public fear of aging. Essentially, almost everyone in the world is so utterly petrified of aging that the only way they cope is by pretending that they're not petrified at all and that they think it's actually a perfectly fine thing. Um, I call it the pro-aging trance. They basically convince themselves into feeling that it's better the devil they know sort of thing. Um, that's, an, that's an enormous problem. Then from the commercial side of things, there's another problem, which is that we are, let's face it, we are quite a long way away from being able to develop this very ambitious multi-component divide-and-conquer strategy against aging. And therefore, um, in terms of the profit motive, it's not particularly attractive compared to things that might actually deliver profits um, in a shorter time frame. Aubrey, uh, doing my research and over the years that I've been, that I've been familiar with this, I come across a lot, so many arguments against this whole idea of uh, vastly extending lifespans. Um, things like just the, the idea that immortality is impossible and what are we going to do when 
with the overpopulation and the resources and and I don't want to be an old frail person for centuries and and won't the rich people only the rich people will be will get this treatment so which I'm sure you've heard I know you've heard all these before I know you've answered all of them very well before but which one which one annoys you the most and which one would you just want everybody to just kind of like realize what you're saying about this? What's your favorite? I, 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 I say they all annoy me pretty much equally because they all <laughs> because they all um, the answers to all of them are more or less the same answers. I mean, when I say they're the same answers, obviously I do have specific answers to particular concerns, like you know, people say you know where will we put all the people? I can talk about the reasons why I think we might actually not have an overpopulation problem, for example. But there are very general reasons why this is just you know, a, a, a wrong-headed way to be thinking in the first place. The first one is that this is not about longevity. This is about not getting sick. The only difference between what I'm talking about and what the rest of the medical profession does is that I think we have a fair chance of, in the, in the foreseeable future, getting so good at stopping people from getting sick that there is this side benefit that they don't tend to die in their sleep at the age of 90 any more often than they do at the age of 30. You know, and so if you put it in those terms, you know, I don't often meet people who actually want to get Alzheimer's disease, right? So it's pretty clear that if one actually, you know, focuses on what this is really about, then, you know, it, it becomes rather, rather curious to talk in terms of these supposedly decisive drawbacks that this would have. Yeah. The second thing that's a very general point that I need to make here when we talk about the extension of lifespan is that the extension of lifespan is not going to happen overnight. It will happen you know, one year per year. And uh, a lot of other things in society, in, in technology, are going to be changing a hell of a lot faster. So if we ask any of the sociological questions about you know, the population or about you know, how we pay the pensions or whatever, then... It's just, you know, it's just meaningless to try to uh, answer these questions in any terms that remotely relate to, to contemporary society. And that seems to me to be a very, very clear reason why we have a moral obligation to develop these therapies as soon as possible, because if we hesitate, then what we're basically doing is, is saying that we have some reason to believe confidently that humanity of the future will not want these therapies. And we have no reason to be, be able to have that confidence. We have no idea what humanity of the future is going to want. And therefore, we have no right to condemn humanity of the future to an unnecessarily early and unnecessarily painful death. Very simple, really. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, it, it's kind of silly to think about, like, how would we deal today with people living hundreds of years old when, in fact, that won't happen for hundreds of years. Exactly. And that will be a very different world then, right? Exactly. Hey, Aubrey, do you spend most of your time now educating people, or are you still doing research? I spend nearly all my time educating people. The thing is, you see, I have pretty good people working for me now on the science side, so I can delegate the science really very effectively. The, science, uh, the structure of the science panel of interventions is pretty stable, of course, but we do obviously need to keep up with ongoing advances in the literature and such like, and I have people who do that for me, so I don't have to spend too much of my time on it. Whereas, conversely, in terms of outreach, in terms of doing interviews like this, or in terms of giving lectures or speaking to potential donors or whatever, uh, of course, all of these people, they want the front man. They don't want um, some research assistant. So, and I don't resent that at all. I think that it's perfectly reasonable for me to regard that as a large part of my job. Yeah, that's the one thing you can't delegate is being you, right? Yeah. Well, Aubrey, thanks so much for giving us your time. It was a very fascinating discussion. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. It's time for Science 
Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real, one fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is fictitious. This is our second week of our Bob J. Challenge for the month of August. Bob is up one answer last week. Bob got it correct. Jay got it wrong. One nil. One to nothing. Jay, you got some, got some uh, making up to do. Get to it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Item number one. French scientists report the first scientific evidence to prove that it is better to serve champagne chilled and to pour it down the side of a tilted glass rather than straight into the glass. Item number two, a new study finds that weightlifting with lighter weights is, that, is as or more effective in muscle building as lifting with heavier weights. And item number three, new research finds that a popular blood thinning drug used to prevent heart attacks actually increases the risk of stroke. Jay, you go first. French scientists report the first scientific evidence to prove it's better to serve champagne chilled and to pour it down the side of a tilted glass rather than straight into a glass. Wow. Really? Not only did I not read that. That is like so weird and obscure and nothing I can grab onto. Well, you know, it was about champagne. I figured it coming off of Evan's <laughs> Dom Perignon gaffe, we had to make up for it somehow. Yeah, Benedictine monks in 1531 apparently are the first ones that uh, experimented with champagne. All right, so... Does that help you, Jay? No, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I really just don't know about the, the champagne thing. I'm just going to go on. A new study finds that weightlifting with lighter weights is as or more effective in muscle building as lifting with heavier weights. That I I don't disagree with. I mean, you could do more reps with lighter weights. I mean, you're not really telling us what's light versus heavy, and that's relative to each person, Steve. This is very inaccurate. It's not inaccurate. It's fake. Well, what would help you? What do you think would help you? Give me the answer. That would help. <laughs> I, would, I would say I'm kind of thinking that that's true because I think um, – the chance of injury is much less, and you could, you know, do maybe double the amount of reps or whatever. And is the workout as good? I mean, overall, I'd say working out with lighter weights is just a healthier way to treat your body instead of going wicked heavy. So I tend to think that one's probably true. And then the last one, new research finds that a popular blood thinning drug used to prevent heart attacks actually increases the risks of stroke. I think that makes a ton of sense. There's something in that one. All right. So going on the, the fact that I'm pretty sure three is true. I'm not so sure about two, but I'm leaning towards it's true. And a one, I have no idea. I'm going to say that number one's the fake. The champagne. Yep. Okay, Bob. Okay, this the champagne down the side. Um, yeah, it makes sense to me. I don't know. It's kind of like a, a – I don't know why a lot of people do it. It's kind of like a reflex. It kind of makes sense. And I could see how it would uh, would affect the quality of maybe – uh, the carbonation and maybe the taste even, but um, so that kind of makes sense to me. Uh, number one, um, the, the the champagne one. The, the second one with weight weightlifting, absolutely. It's not it's not really about how heavy the weight is. It doesn't matter if you do ten repetitions or if you do thirty repetitions. The key is that you you know, go you go to muscular failure. You go, you go to the proper level of fatigue. So it just takes longer. It's annoying when you're doing lots of lots of repetitions. But if you're going to muscular failure, you're gonna you'll experience growth. Um, so yeah, that makes perfect sense uh, to me. Uh, I'm a little hesitant about the more effective, uh, but maybe it is a little bit more effective in some because there is less chance of injury. The blood thinning one, yeah, I don't know about that. It kind of doesn't, kind of doesn't make that much sense to me. If you got thin blood, 
I would think it would kind of maybe reduce the risk of stroke. Um, I don't know, but they're talking about uh, Coumadin here, which is actually, uh, well, that's rat poison, isn't it? But um, So that one did, that makes the least sense to me. So I'm going to say that the blood thinning one is fiction. Okay, Rebecca? Yeah, um, the idea that French scientists are... Um Wasting their time drinking <laughs> champagne and figuring out the perfect way to drink champagne is so stereotypical. And yet, <laughs> and yet, I, I think that it's true. Um, because, yeah, you should pour it down the side of a tilted glass. Come on, people. And obviously, it should be chilled. Lighter weights being more effective, I can see that too. Um, maybe something about... I don't. I don't know how muscles work, but I can, oh, I yes, guess, you do. Well, some <laughs> muscles. That's technically not a muscle. Yeah, I, I can see that. You know, something about lean muscle mass building that up first, and then I don't know something. Yeah, um, <laughs> but <laughs> heart attacks and strokes. I was under the impression that they're both caused by clots, and so. A blood thinner should um, should fix both of them. So I don't see why it would um, cause clots in one area while reducing clots in the other. Therefore, I'm going to side with Bob and say that oh, that's you guys the fiction. Suck. Sorry, Jay. <laughs> okay, Sorry. Evan. Love you. All right, French scientists. About that one. Here's what I think about that. Okay. So, oh, God. <laughs> Seriously, Evan, you were trying to turn this into some sort of wacky morning DJ show thing, turning and it's just it not working. Don't do it. No, wait a minute. I go through a lot of no, effort to no, come up with No, by next week, we're going to be making crank calls to a local <laughs> car dealership, okay? Who told you? Who would prank people? Who's giving away my best, my best secrets? Evan, don't uh. use sound effects just because you have them. <laughs> no, wait a minute. I find that to be the best reason to, to use them. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Oh. Uh. I have a problem with number one and with the French scientist one. Here's why: evidence to prove that it's better to serve champagne chilled. Better, better than what? I have no indication as to what better is. Where where are the markers here? I'm having a so I'm leaning with Jay that this one is the uh, is the fiction. Wow. Although, on, Bob. <laughs> uh, although my inst- my instinct says to uh, go ahead with uh, GWB, the, the one the one Bob and, <laughs> and, and Rebecca chose about the, yeah, uh, the, yeah. the blood thinning drug. All of us have to make decisions at some point. Ed, you're, you know? you're right. So I'm just, hey, I'm just going to go with what I think. I, I don't like that the term better is in here with no uh, indicator is better than what or worse than what. Okay. Uh, so that one's fixed. So you all agree that number two, with number two, a new study finds that weightlifting lighter weights is as or more effective in muscle building as lifting with heavier weights. Yes, we do. I all think that one is science. And that one is fiction. Science. That okay. is science. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> Bob, how about that? that? <laughs> oh, um, it was obvious. I mean, yeah, it, it probably is also safer, but this study was not about safety. This was just looking at uh, different forms of working out. Bob, you basically nailed it. I mean, what what the research showed was that as long as you go to failure, that that's where you get the maximal benefits. And they could, they actually had three groups. They compared doing ninety percent of someone's maximal weight that they can lift uh, to failure, doing thirty percent, 
but and then and doing an equivalent amount of work. So if you do like weight times reps, that that was equal, and then doing thirty percent, but going to failure. The uh, go either group going to failure was better than the, the the third group where they weren't going to failure. So doing more work, doing doing the equivalent amount of work wasn't as good, but going to failure was. That was the component. But also with the lighter weights. With the 30% of, of maximal capacity going to failure on some markers, and they, and they were looking at essentially the activity uh, of proteins in the muscle tissue and how active they were in, in, in being produced. So, um, Actin and myosin? Yeah, so my, just myosin protein synthesis basically. So the protein synthesis was increased a little bit more in some ways in the, in the 30% failure group. And equivalent uh, in other ways to the to the ninety percent failure. Really, group. while the Interesting. yeah, while the um, one that was fixed for workload but not not going to failure was was less. So yeah, as long as you go to failure, you're going to get close to the, the maximum result. But it, it also shows that yeah, yeah, if you use a lighter weight and do twenty thirty reps, you may be getting a little bit better muscle building than uh, than doing fewer reps with a heavier weight, which is and interesting. It's safer. it's safer. I mean, uh, you know, we we've done. Um, you know, weightlifting and exercise, you know, on and off over the years, and been to various, you know, gyms and places. And essentially, you hear a lot of stuff from trainers and from and from bodybuilders. And I, I always had the re- the sense that it was just stuff people was making up, and it wasn't real. A lot of it wasn't evidence based. Like you, yeah. I was told for a while that twelve reps is the optimal. Where did that really yeah. come from? You know, just eight to twelve. It's all anecdotal. Yeah, yeah, it's all anecdotal. You know, not that there isn't research being done, but it just it's just like the research isn't really penetrating into the culture of bodybuilding too much. So this is it's actually good to know that yeah, you could use a you know lighter weight and just do more reps, and you'll get as good or better results. Uh, let's go on to number three. New research finds that a popular blood thinning drug used to prevent heart attacks actually increases the risk of stroke. Bob and Rebecca thinks this one is the fiction. Oh, Jay and Evan I think it, this I think one it might science. be the fiction, but yeah, I had to guess. Yeah, it's a big, and it's a big, you know, before you say it, Steve, Bob, it's pretty big right now. Huge. I don't you know, yeah. that could be. The, if there you, are implications for the contest, yes. And this one is the fiction. What? Damn. Oh, come on. <laughs> Sorry, Jay. Come on. This is the fiction. I made it up. <laughs> Sorry, Evan, too. Yeah, Bob and Rebecca's logic is correct. You know, basically, if you're thinning the blood, you're going to prevent strokes and heart attacks. And the, interestingly, you would think that the risk reduction would be pretty much identical in both since they're both caused by essentially the same thing, just in different arteries. But there are differences, and it's interesting. The research has shown that, you, you know, different responses to different doses of different medications. Uh, but... There's no, you know, blood thinning drug that, and and I, and when I say stroke, I'm not talking about bleeding in the brain because I'm talking about, you know, stroke, 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 not bleeding. Sometimes people use the term to to refer to things that aren't really strokes, like hemorrhages. But because your blood thinners do increase your risk of hemorrhages, but if you're talking about just the risk of stroke itself, you know, the drugs that reduce heart attack also reduce the incidence of stroke. The 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 research that did that inspired. My fake item was uh, a, a survey that showed that one in four stroke patients stop taking their blood thinning medication within three months of having a stroke, which is when they're at a very, very high risk of a oh, recurrent God. stroke. So this is an, a situation where we have an evidence-based proven therapy that significantly reduces risk, and it's hard just to... to to optimize compliance and you know, to get everyone who should be doing it to, to be doing it. 
which means which means that French scientists report the first scientific evidence to prove that it is better to serve champagne chilled and to pour it down the side of a tilted glass rather than straight into a glass is science. What do they and mean by better? That they, they mean something very specific. Well, when you pour yeah. any anything with fizz into it into a glass, you're going to get right. way too much head if you just dump it right in. So you have to pour it into a tilted glass. What if you like? What if you like fizz? What if you like your champagne foamy? So well, that's it, ridiculous, right? Doesn't it well, come this down? This isn't to about. The, the, actually, they didn't use the foaminess. It was the retention of the bubbles. Now, the yeah. the premise of their research is that that the bubbles make the champagne taste better because it transfers taste, aroma, and mouthfeel. So, but you said specifically uh, said chilled in there, and yes. that is specifically why I didn't take And it. they found that chilling it before serving it reduces the loss of the bubbles and also pouring it down the side of the glass causes um, twice as much of the bubble, uh, bubbles to be remain. Retained. To remain as pouring it directly into the glass. This game sucks. Jay, you could rocks. You could, you know, break down and actually read science news items. Like I didn't. I did. Not the right ones, apparently. <laughs> well, good work, Bob and Rebecca. Mm, thank, thank you. So, Jay, Jay, you have two weeks left, so you can still tie. Look, you know what? On top of me losing again, it's my birthday. Nobody even said anything on the I show. I was waiting for the end of the show, Jay. Yeah. And number three, you know, if Bob really wanted to give me a nice birthday present, which he didn't, he could have let me win. He could have thrown this one for him. <laughs> but he did. That's not sporting, Jay. You wouldn't Clearly. have wanted that. That's I would have loved win. that. No, <laughs> I would have taken that. Not not good that. Happy birthday, Jay. August 11th, the day we're recording the show, is in fact Jay's birthday. <laughs> Jay, give us a quote this week. This quote was sent in by a listener named PJ Dietz. D-I-E-T-Z. Dietz? Dietz? Diets. Probably Deets. PJ Diets is some <laughs> <Wind> Watchers <laughs> <laughs> run by TGI Fridays. <laughs> Try PJ Diets' new chicken wings. <laughs> this is a quote from Hippocrates. 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 There are, there are, in fact, two things science and opinion. The former begets knowledge, the latter, ignorance. Hippocrates! <laughs> <laughs> you get to say it any way you want to today, Jake, because it's your birthday. It's your birthday. I have an, uh, thank you. It's your birthday. Another one? We got a two Another birthday? Yeah, I just this one is non-skeptical or science-related. It's just funny. <laughs> and, and this quote was sent in by a listener named Kel two years ago, and I'm, I'm pulling on it, but I like it. Power corrupts. Absolute power is kind of neat. You said it. Was, uh, John Lehman, Secretary of the Navy, 81 to 87. John Lehman! Wow, the Secretary of the Navy thinks that absolute power is kind of neat. <laughs> what does the Secretary <laughs> of the Navy even do? Get them coffee? Come on. I know, like types up stuff. <laughs> 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 well, does anyone have any announcements to make? Oh, probably. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing Cambridge Skeptics in the Pub. Have I mentioned that yet? I Cambridge say. Skeptics in the Pub? Yeah, I don't know. It's Jay's uh, yeah. birthday. It's Jay's birthday. It's an announcement. I'm doing Cambridge Skeptics in the Pub on the 31st of August. You should be there. I'd like to thank my real friends who happen to be on Facebook. Who unbelievable response on Facebook? I gave you a happy wishing birthday. Me a happy birthday. I think I had a couple of hundred people wish me a happy birthday on Facebook. Jay, how old are you today? 
No, this I, is important. Actually, yeah, this is good. yeah, Rebecca knows that my age is is amazingly important to yes. not only friends and family, but to science fiction admirers. Yeah, you have worldwide. To tell us. It's the answer to everything. Yes, I'm life 42. I am the answer. Yes. Awesome. The life, the That's universe, and everything. I was saying that this is going to be Jay's <laughs> best year. I mean, it's a lot of pressure, but it has to be done. It has to be the greatest year ever. I'm working on it. Thank you for joining me, everyone, this week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Yay. Happy ha- birthday, Jay. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday Jay. Jay. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. 